Hey everybody, welcome to Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. I'm your host, Jason Hobbs, <laughs> and my wife is looking at me funny. Uh, they're back. I have uh, Eric the Hoff Hoffman and Jose the Panhandler Lucario with me, and we're doing Hex Talk. Jose? And we're looking at you funny, too. <laughs> Always. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to keep the introduction short because we got a ton of Hex Talk stuff to cover today. So I'm not going to do anything about you, too, just me. No, not me either. I'm just kidding. So let's talk about our gaming in the last couple of weeks. What, are you, what have you been playing, Eric? So still been running uh, my Battletech MechWarrior campaign that we've been uh, kind of playing around with, and it's getting more and more in-depth, and I'm getting more interested in it. So we've been playing it like two two times a week, maybe? Yeah, we've been playing a lot. Uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, I've been enjoying it a lot. Yeah, we actually felt fairly successful last time for the first time that I've been playing. Most of the time, we just kind of <laughs> yeah. get our asses handed to us, and that's about it. <laughs> you guys are learning. I have had a lot of uh, interest in that when I talk about it, when I game with other people. Uh, it seems to like really trip nostalgia triggers for people, so uh, that's pretty cool. You want to say anything about Battletech, Jose? Uh, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, we successfully achieved a major battle objective in our last uh in our last outing defending a dam against opposing forces so it was a lot of fun and and there's a little role-playing element between uh sessions that eric has crafted so we're having a really good time with it man i don't know if i'd call it role-playing but we roll some dice anyway i guess well not hobbs level role-playing <laughs> but it's role-playing <laughs> not that much All right. story I don't know how my marauder feels about this situation. <laughs> That's right. Explore the emotions of my Warhammer. Well, I'm pretty sure Bird's uh, mech pilot isn't too happy about his arm getting shattered and having to retire, but hey. Yeah, so the characters learned an important lesson about not dumping all of their generated abilities and skills into mech combat because we got a little, a little, into a little fight outside of the mechs and everybody realized that small arms is a very useful skill. I will say part of the problem is we came into Battletech almost like coming into OSR as newbies. It's been a long time since we played, so we're not used to the nuances. So I think our second generation guys will be a little bit better equipped to handle Eric's uh, world. Yeah, for sure. And that was the way I came into Battletech. I, I had left to join the Army, and my regular gaming group had found Battletech while I was away. And I came back after training. And they were like in the middle of a campaign. Literally, I walked into the game shop where we used to play, and they had like a six-board planetary assault going on. And they're like, quick, make up a character over there, and then here's your stinger, right? Which is a really light mech that can't do much. And so my first character was could barely walk without falling down because I just picked all <laughs> kinds of cool stuff. Like he had a bunch of guns and all this stuff. And they're like, okay, great. Now you're in this robot. You have none of that. And I spent almost no points in piloting it was just um big mess uh, so lesson lesson learned yeah mm -hmm. no kidding all right so yeah we've been playing BattleTech, and it's pretty fun you've been playing anything else jose yeah i've been playing fifth edition uh, isle of dread hex crawl with alan g and edwin Nagy, and it's a lot of fun we encounter a lot of stuff we're exploring the whole aisle and we do that every other week. We've been playing for a couple of years on that now. So we're almost level eight in our, with our fifth level characters. Got a very OSR feel with the fifth edition rule set. I've talked about that on the podcast before. Never specifically with Jose, I don't think, but I think it can have an OSR feel, even though there are kind of, it has the, it does quite a few things or it tries to, fifth edition does. We won't talk about it again. I've already talked about it. And I don't really care what you think about it, Jose. 
Understood. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, <laughs> on uh, the holiday, I had to work. You know, we had the weekend, and then we had Monday, which was July 3rd, and then Tuesday, which was July 4th. For, you know, for our international people, you might have heard, you know, we have this thing called Independence Day. And uh, my, my buddy Kevin Madison was hacking on us about... In England, it's known as Dirty Trader Day. Yeah, exactly. He sent that meme around, which was pretty funny. But uh, I was bored on that day, and no one was running anything. So uh, I called up my brother and my cousin, and we started playing Black Powder Black Magic in a complete made-up sandbox. It's not really a hex crawl. It's more like an urban crawl. It was pretty darn fun, and it's got me really thinking that I might try to write my own Western game. I don't know, though. We'll see, because I'm kind of lazy and... I think it would take a long time if you're going to be lazy about it. What do you guys think? I agree. You're very lazy. <laughs> I did talk to you guys about it, and uh, you, you actually helped me out quite a bit in the things we were talking about. All right, so that pretty much wraps up the introduction. So I wanted to start uh, Hex Talk today with uh, an email that we got concerning uh, Hex Talk specifically, and that is from uh, Corey Gosman, or as some people would know him, DM Kojo. Hi, Hobbs. I'm really enjoying your Hexcrawl series on the podcast. I have long been interested in running a West Marches-style campaign ever since coming across the blog topic a couple of years ago. I generally run pre-published adventures for my DCC RPG campaigns, so I would love to hear how you would incorporate existing modules into a Hexcrawl situation. Would you have adventures for all different levels in the wild, like the mountains far to the north as the location of Frozen in Time, a seaport to the south that leads to the Tower of the Black Pearl, the Shutter Mountains to the east with the Chained Coffin, and maybe a dimensional portal hidden in an ancient hollow tree that leads to the Purple Planet? My only concern is how to have all those modules prepped ahead of time. Any advice is appreciated. Thanks, DM Kojo. So I think uh, Jose has a specific thing he wants to talk about this. So what do you think, Jose? How would you do it? Yeah, really quickly, the first thing is, one, the only benefit I see is it's, with, with the hex crawl, a lot of times you want it to be a, a nightly effort. The players get there, they do their thing, and they come back so that you can have players dropping in and dropping out. With prepared modules, sometimes they're longer than one session, so that becomes difficult. DCC modules are sometimes shorter, uh, but still, you're gonna have that, you're gonna have that to contend with. But aside from that, one of the things you can do is you can drop your rumors for your various modules and rather than prepare them all, prepare yourself like a key dungeon. And what I mean by that is if you have three locations that you want them to go to, which are prepared modules, prepare a key dungeon first that has the key or the scroll or the the uh, uh, amulet on a stick, whatever MacGuffin you need to open the entrance or open the valley or get to wherever they need for that prepared dungeon. And they're in that key dungeon doing that for a session or two while you're preparing the next dungeon. And that's kind of one of those ideas that'll get you where you want to go without having to prepare everything. But you you do have a, a big undertaking in trying to use prepared dungeons for each of your locations. Especially with dungeons of uh, of that length. Mm-hmm. I think we'll cover this more later, but uh, one of the things we like to do maybe is just like one-page dungeon or actually adventure locales, I think is what you were talking about, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of published modules for the kind of gaming that I like. I, I know people are who like to string them together, but that um, that's not really what – I don't think they fit well into a hex crawl or a sandbox campaign. I much prefer – one, like one-page dungeons or, lo, or or adventure locations. It doesn't have to be a dungeon. It could be a, a wood, right? But um, the kind of stuff you see on the one-page dungeon contest, although those have gotten very 
artsy, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're actually largely unplayable now. <laughs> but um, back in the day, the original ones, like the first and second year, are great, right? They're just great drop-in locations that don't have a lot of preamble necessary to get the players there. They can literally just stumble across them, and it makes sense. Also, there were some really great when the OSR first got kicked off and it was all blogs, there's a lot of great uh, of the old blogs that have one page or, or short adventures. Compilations from the early magazines. Fight On is great. There are um, uh, a ton of things in there. I was running a DCC kind of a hex crawl in uh, using just stuff I pulled out of there, out, out of Fight On. There's a lot of great stuff there. Also, uh, Noxbell, Albalette, all the, all the old magazines tend to have those... Um, short adventure locales or or even like Stonehell, right? You can take that mega dungeon, but Michael Curtis specifically set it up so that each level of that dungeon can be pulled apart to be four one-page dungeons. So you could seed an entire campaign world with just the individual quadrants of all of his dungeon levels and have a scalable campaign that was a bunch of different adventure locales using a broken up mega dungeon. Uh, there was also um, Paul Wolf was running a game and it was somebody's idea off of a blog post to take a classic module like keep on the borderlands and take the caves of chaos. And instead of having it be one location, rip each of the lettered caves out and place them all around the map. Like, so that kind of idea, you can take a pre-published module and make it fit more of a sandbox setting. It does take some work to do. But so some of the things that he specifically said, Tower of the Black Pearl is a perfect one, actually, because it is a adventure locale. It's a you kind of have to do away with some of the timing element of of people rushing out there. You have to fiddle with some of that. But other other than that, you can drop those kinds of pre modules into uh, a sandbox. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just kind of skimming off the fluff and just kind of using what it is as something you could happen upon. Or like if you wanted to keep, say, frozen in time, you could have, uh, you know, in the beginning of that adventure, there's people actually that seek you out to have you come and help them, which is something that could happen in your starting location or something, if you so desire that. But on the overall, I really prefer, like you say, uh, one-page dungeons or even the five-room dungeon. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. John Four, who does the GM tips, he does, uh, he's got a whole bunch of five-room dungeons that he does. And you can just search for that online and find a bunch, because that's almost exactly what we're talking about size-wise, which works well in a hex crawl. I know in Kalmata I have some larger ones, but the main thrust of them are just a few main encounters and then just to see what happens afterwards, I think is how I would say. So thanks for sending that in, Corey. Does anyone else have anything else they want to mention about that? Or Yeah, the only thing I'd like to reiterate is that Eric Hoffman thinks that one-page dungeons <laughs> are largely unplayable. Uh, please continue, Hobbs. <laughs> I just figure if that's going to add some spice because you know someone's going to take that and bite, and I'm hoping to get you know a little spice. There we go. <laughs> All right, so thanks for sending that in, Corey. Corey's going to be on the show here uh, at the end of the month because we're planning on doing a special kids episodes through Misdirected Mark. So almost all of the shows on the Misdirected Mark network are going to do shows about kids, and Corey's going to join me with Brett, and we're going to have one for that. So thanks again for sending that email, Corey. All right, so let's move on. I sent a, a map out of the patrons that uh, we called the Bloody Swale. How did you make it, Eric? I guess you made the map, so why don't you just talk briefly about that? Sure, yeah. So I used a, a program called Hexographer, uh, which is really great. I've been using it for years and years. Uh, it's done by Inkwell. Um, Designs. <clears throat> is it is it Inkwell Designs? Yeah. Inkwell Ideas, isn't it? Inkwell Ideas, yeah, you're right. I and, never get um, those right. Uh, 
it's uh, they've actually got a new one out that kickstarted called Worldographer, which is like uh, version 2.0 basically, which is even better that I've messed around with a little bit. But I'm still using my my trusty old hexographer. And you can one of the things you can do in this program is um, set it up where you do a random map, right? You pick the number. So I did a 10 by 10 random map, and you know you can fiddle with some of the things so you don't get snow if you don't want snow. You can pick kind of a biome, right, for a Minecraft reference. And I just created it, and I just saw what came out, and I think I did a couple to have one that made some logical sense to it, and then dropped a town in there um, where, you know, <laughs> ostensibly the starting area would be. Uh, although there was some, there's some change to that. Uh, so that's all I did. Quickly, he's alluding to the fact that there was a heated and contentious dialogue before the show about the what was going to be the starting town and what it actually represented. And then what, where Iron Through Outpost was and what the valley to the south represented. I mean, it almost broke up the show. Hobbs and Friends of the OSR almost dissolved from the, not, not yeah. true, but it was an interesting debate. And we're, we're trying to figure out how maybe Hobbs can bring that kind of stuff to y'all on a side format, but continue. That's right. I'll let you all figure, you know, take your own guesses as to who injected copious backstory into this basic OSR hex crawl uh, that we were that we were planning. All right. So uh, that covers our first thoughts on that, apparently. So uh, what Jose is referring to, and even uh, Eric mentioned this as well, is we talked about having a starting area and that we would set one up for you. When Eric did the map originally, he put the one icon on there, which is the town. And then we talked for maybe 20 minutes on or at least, you know, two weeks preparing for this show when really it was only 20 minutes before the show and, you know, right after Eric did the map. And we are talking about maybe having a pre-show that I'll record before we start the actual show, and then maybe we'll send it out to patrons or something like that. So, uh, But don't expect anything too crazy because we're really mild-mannered guys, and, you know, it, it, I'm sure there won't be anything that could be offensive to anyone in that. <laughs> so on to the starting area itself. I had this idea that, uh, well, first to start with Jose talking about a meteor coming down and creating a problem. And that's why that's just one of the aspects of the area, but it's not that important. I said that it would be cool if it was a dwarven outpost instead of maybe a town on the lake, like Eric had. And since it's my show, that's what we're going to do. God damn it. <laughs> so it's actually off to the side of the map. Uh, but then right below it is this area that we, uh, have, has, have called the Iron Thews approach. The reason for that is because the dwarves are the clan of the Iron Thews. And so this, uh, plain that's to the south of the mountain, uh, stretch on the east side of the map, centrally located, there's a plain right below that. So if the starting area is the dwarven outpost or the dwarven, the clan of the Iron Thews outpost, then this is the Iron Thews approach. And this is the, uh, region that we're actually going to discuss when we talk about how we're going to prepare our iron, our encounter tables. And uh, maybe how that works. Eric, you want to start that? Sure. Yeah. So one of the main you know, reasons we're doing this and what I think is what is really important, the kind of prep work that you have to do for a sandbox hex crawl is you know, different than when you're doing a, me- a mega dungeon. So you got to think of the of the hex crawl area as your your dungeon. Right. And each of the hexes or regions within there, those are your rooms. So where you would spend a lot of time in a mega dungeon saying what's in every room. Um, it's really important in a hex crawl to have, you know, regions that feel like something, right? Like a level of a mega dungeon, um, using old school mega dungeon design. Same thing. You want to have the, the crypt level. You want to have the, the bowling alley level, the machine level, right? Whatever you want to do. And so you got to put the time in up front, or you should, to do these encounter tables that really make it feel, they really uh, evoke the feeling 
So when when you get an encounter, the players should always know, oh yeah, this is where we are, right? We're in the Iron Thews approach, um, and that can be you know really needs to be separate from whatever the next the next thing, uh, region is over. So it really makes them come alive and feel like uh, a living, breathing place. So what we wanted to talk about today is how how to do that, like the the ways you can develop encounter tables, the things you can put in there, the ways you can have multiple tables work together or um, multiple results work together to really bring about an emergent story within the hex crawl. And why do you think it's important to do that? You mentioned this earlier on the pre-show. I don't know. You're giving me leading questions, uh, counselor. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I'll say one thing about that. The, the reason you want it is, is if you're going to have areas like this, you want those areas to be evocative and you want your characters, you want the players to associate the monsters with that area and to to make that area come to life with the monsters. Like, for instance, let's say you have a place called the Crawling Forest, and it's filled with spiders. Eventually, your your players, if they have to go through there, they're going to groan because nobody likes to fight spiders. And even if it's just random encounters, if you put enough arachnid encounters in there, the Crawling Forest becomes a scary place that they don't want to go, and it's going to be different than... You know, the, the, the fey forest, which is filled with, you know, fey creatures and things like that. And maybe a few sp- spiders, which we'll talk about if they, especially if they abut each other. So it gives each area its own feeling, which is a good thing. I think that's a West March's axiom, which honestly, it probably, it, it started from even sooner than that. You know, maybe from the expert set when they first started talking about wilderness adventures is, uh, having the areas. So the k- players kind of, in some ways, part of the uh, learning process or the mastery of the game is understanding that it is segmented into areas and having some kind of idea what you might run into. So, when, so if something goes different, then you even know it as you know player characters that hey, something's weird in uh, Iron Thew's approach because this stands out or something like that. Which, like you say, makes it more emergent or you know gives it vermicillitude. So, I think that's important. All right, so what's next then? We kind of told why we're doing it. So is it time? All right, do you want to talk a little bit about the locales and how you may use a locale in Iron Thew's approach, or do you want to just move right into the encounter tables themselves? Eric? Uh, yeah, so the locales, as far as the adventure locales, you'd seed the map with. Um, yeah, so you know, I kind of go back to the Moldvay dungeon stocking. That was my first introduction to Dungeons & Dragons, and I think since then, I can say probably stands up as some of the best instructions on how to build a dungeon. And, and I really like to take some of the fear out of hex crawling and say it's really just a dungeon, right? I said this in the first episode, just every room has six exits. So doing that, thinking about it that way makes it a lot less scary. And the first thing you do in a Mold Bay dungeon after you have your map is you pick your special encounters, right? The things that you want to have on that dungeon level, and you're going to place them yourself because it's something you created. And that's what your adventure locales would be. So you're going to want to pick a couple. You don't have to do them all because you only need a couple to get started of one-page dungeons or magazine dungeons or uh, or prepackaged modules where you want to drop them in and say, okay, you know, here is where this place is. So I've decided that I want to put these things in this area. So... This area would be great for Iron Thew's approach. Would be great for like um, I'm trying to think of something. I guess I'll just one that I wrote, the ruined aqueduct that um, is in uh, the new Dolmve book um, that Pete Spawn put out. And 
which is a great book. It has a lot of uh, the new special edition has I think twelve different of these adventure locales, old school adventure written by a bunch of folks in the OSR that Pete collected. Um, so that would be another great resource to go grab. Even if you're not using that setting, you can grab these 12 adventures and sprinkle them around your own sandbox. Um, so one I had was the Ruin Aqueduct, which these guys playtested in my Keep of the Borderlands campaign. And that could be a location within the uh, the valley because it makes sense, right? Spilling out of the mountains is this old aqueduct, and, and there's stuff in there, and it's a night or two of adventure. So you drop that on the map somewhere, um, and that might be the first place that your players were – uh, either stumble across or are sent to go to, or even, as we're going to talk about, can discover through the uh, random tables meeting certain creatures or, or characters on the, uh, um, as, they, as they travel through the, the valley. Yeah, I think that's, that's well said, and uh, I would only add that you're going to want something close, like the initial, because it's going to be dangerous out here. So when your characters are first level, and even quite a few maybe, you want some nearby places for them to go to because you don't necessarily want three or four first-level guys having to trek uh, a very long space across this valley or the approach and moving into other areas yet because really I'm not saying that it's balanced in any way uh, because it's not. When we start working on the encounter tables, you see that we're not balancing it at all. But I think it's important for them to have an, a place to start off to and uh, just to maybe wet their whistle a little bit on uh, what's going on and just giving them uh, an idea of what the uh, aesthetic is going to be. Do you have anything to add, Jose? Uh, really quick. Do you want me to discuss how how the the 2D6 encounter table works? Well, I, we're gonna, I was going to do that next, but we can move into that if you don't have anything. Yeah, go ahead. No, I don't have anything. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's say what we're going to do now. You can go ahead, Jose. Tell everybody. Yeah, I just wanted to mention uh, a lot of the times when you're building encounter tables, you're going to see that they're 2D6 or 2D10 or have some sort of uh, of curve on them. The reason for that is, and a lot of a lot of you know, but we're going to explain it anyways, is it allows you to build rarity into your tables. For instance, if you're going to use a 2D6 table and the results on the 2 and the 12 are only going to come up 1 out of 36 times. You're going to see them very rare. So that's where you're going to put your big bruiser monsters, your unique encounters, that once you see them and once they're gone, they're gone. Conversely, when you talk about the middle of the table hitting 7, Hitting seven happens one out of six times when you roll 2d6 because no matter what you roll on the other die, you have a one out of six chance of rolling what you need to get a seven. So that's going to come up six times more than the stuff on the outer edge. And then your your rarity decreases as you move outward. So your common stuff goes in the middle that you're going to see all the time in, in, in whatever zone you're talking about. And then you move your unique unique encounters out to the end and then sprinkle your rarities as you move towards the center. So that's kind of why they use a 2D6 table so that you have a curve to work with. Yeah, and, and tying that back to the to the theme here, why that's important is those central common encounters really need to be thematically what the region's about. The West Marches campaign that I ran for a long time, there was an area that the group went through all the time, and it was like a basic starting woodland area. I think it was called the Coppice Woods or something or some, something like that. And it was just real common monsters in the middle. And one time, months into the campaign, they were going through there and they rolled a rare encounter. And that led them, it derailed everything they had planned to do. And, and they were like, why is this? I forget what it was. It was, uh, something out of the ordinary that they'd never seen before. I think a troll or something. What's this troll doing here? We've only ever encountered, you know, ghouls and, uh, ponies or whatever. Um, and they started tracking it. And so, and so they started tracking it like all through the area. 
Um, another time was there was uh, orcs in an area that had largely been thought to be the humanoids that lived there were goblins, and it was a it was a rare encounter. Actually, I think it was um, as we'll talk about. We built it in where you can have an encounter from a neighboring region. You know, is is a, is a rare occurrence in in any given encounter table, so that monsters from the mountains actually come down into the valley. And one time, the players in that same campaign, it was another DM running his area, found a, a party of orcs. And it was just a random foraging band of orcs. But the players avoided them and started tracking them back to the, they went to an entirely different region. And a whole orc outpost that was the center, center of kind of the thematic focus of that region. So, um, those kind of things, when you build these encounter tables, the idea is to build for those kinds of, um, uh, adventures and, and encounters coming up because that's what makes a hex crawl sandbox really come alive and not just be a very static type of environment. Yeah, that's what makes them zing for sure. Uh, as far as the encounter tables go, you know, it's just flat 2d6 and now you know it's a bell curve and you know you put the more rare monsters on the outside. But what if you want to have a same set of tables that can reflect multiple things? Like um, I have a, a point crawl called the Casalan Tubes in Kalmata. And, uh, it actually changes depending on where height you are within the tubes, but I don't, I still want to have some of the stuff happen. So it's something called like we, we basically named it what the sliding encounter table. So you want to go ahead and finish that off? Yeah. Yeah. So a thing that I've been kind of playing around with, I haven't seen it published anywhere, but I, you know, I, I don't recall seeing it published anywhere, but it totally could have been because everything I think is stolen from 20 years of reading D and D stuff anyway. But a real cool thing to do is to make the encounter tables have longevity is, you know, by the time you play this for a couple of months and the characters are now fifth level and they traipse through the Iron Thru's approach, this this kind of valley a hundred times, they're going to kill a lot of stuff. Other stuff is going to happen off screen. Maybe, you know, the dwarves, you know, it, a lot more move in. Something's going to happen. And if that area becomes more pacified, and there's not as, you know, the big monsters at the ends of the table, like Jose talked about, are killed off. Well, the area is not as dangerous anymore. So one thing you can do is um, start adding some. In. So build your encounter table. So the lower numbers is where the really deadly stuff is. And the higher numbers, although still rare, is like friendly encounters, right? Like a traveling merchant or, you know, we're going to get into that when we build it. And if you add uh, encounters after that that are even increasingly more friendly, like you can have, you know, a friendly cavalry patrol, and then you can have a farmstead, right? It's things that are really civilized. Well, then when you roll on that encounter table, you can just add a plus two to the roll, for instance, or a plus one each time the area becomes more civilized from from wilderness to frontier to borderlands to settled. And then so by the end... Um, you know, it's very low chance that you get any kind of a dangerous encounter, and that can uh, extend the longevity of your of your tables um, through the course of the campaign. And that's an interesting concept too, because in domain play, if uh, things happen in the campaign to affect civility or things like that, you can lower that scale back down and reintroduce monsters that were rare or no longer in the area. To, to show that, you know, savagery is coming back into that area and it's becoming wild again. So it's a, that's a really neat idea for kind of, uh, controlling the civility of an area. Yeah. And the beauty of it is, is that most of the work, right? You've got your first 11 in encounters. So you just tack two more on either side. And now you've got this sliding scale that, um, because of the weight of the, 
percentages really changes the feel, but not the theme, um, or rather changes the the lethality, but not the theme of the region. And it's 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 you don't waste that work. You don't have to create a new encounter table for every change in the campaign world. It's a, it's a time saver. And that sliding scale would be an excellent way to represent encroachment. Again, for instance, if the crawling forest is expanding and the players are not doing anything to stop it, that encroachment can be represented by a lowering of the civility so that when you're in areas near there, you're going to encounter more monsters uh, of the arachnid type. And you might even affect tables to the side of that so like if there's a plains to the side of the crawling forest you're going to meet more spiders then because they're starting to encroach and that might be represented there too so that's a really really cool concept yeah that's a good point expanding on that even like uh, things that the players do so maybe they you know i don't know about your osr players but they want to skin everything they kill to take it back to town and one of the things that I did in my West Marches campaign that got so annoying is I actually increased the likelihood of an encounter if they were carrying around <laughs> rotting carcasses. But you could scale it back, be, you know, the same way. So give them a minus on the roll so that more likely dangerous predators are going to be encountered as well as, as opposed to, you know, traveling merchants don't care if you're hauling around rotting carcasses, but owlbears do. So you give the minus on that roll as whenever the players are doing something really annoying like that. See, this is the kind of thing we, we do before a game a lot. We think of an idea and we riff on it. That's what we just did. We, we talked, we had just a bare idea for this, this sliding scale and we just came up with a, a bunch of other ideas just by discussing it. And that, and that be, it's a really cool mechanic now that I think is going to get explored very soon in some games. Oh yeah. Many of us are going to lose <laughs> player characters to this little conversation. It's going to be ugly. Yeah. It's going to be very ugly. I'm going to lose every character in every game I play now. In many ways, this sliding scale or this mechanic is a way for the GM to change up the story or, you know, show change in the, in the campaign setting without just writing it down, right? It's just still randomly generated and you're still just a unbiased participant. Uh, it's just another cool way to tell stories without it being any sort of railroad and giving it co- total player agency and just letting the dice decide. So I think that's a pretty cool thing. So we're getting close here. Let's let's get this random table maybe, right? So basically, you know, it's a 2D6 table. So you're all 2D6 and whatever you get, you get. And uh, one of the things that I like to do, and I know Eric does this as well, is uh, you want the opportunity to not just have 11 things that could happen. You maybe want to have a situation where two of the things are interacting in some way. And so you can say that anytime you roll doubles on the 2d6, you use both of them or roll again. You know, you use whatever you got and then you roll again and then there's two different groups and then you decide what's going on uh, as the GM. You know, you just kind of make it up on the fly and uh, let the players interact, which they're going to do. So we got 11 entries. All right. We did some of these ahead of time. Uh, like I really are uh, for our rare creatures. I really wanted to have a Cyclops. And, uh, Jose, you had what? Uh, I went with the Tremors feel and I went with a purple worm. All right. Nice. So, uh, we're just going to just maybe start, you know, just kind of talk out whatever it is we want. So, Eric, you got one? Well, really a quick point. That's the whole thing. The, this is this, we're talking about this being the starting area and the way you get in and there's still going to be a very dangerous Cyclops <laughs> that they can meet and a very dangerous purple worm they can meet. That's just the idea of the OSR. Sometimes you've got to run away. Well, and it's also possible that as the GM, you don't have to have it be the purple worm. It could be traces of the purple worm or traces. Or a rumbling. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you can do. So, Eric, you got one? 
Yeah, I'll go with the center of the table here and something really common and not necessarily lethal with like a herd animal. So plains, buffalo, or or whatever your world's version is of that kind of creature. Yeah, aurochs or bison or whatever, right? Jose? Yeah, I like that. Um, well, you always got to have uh, like people traveling to – it's not going to be all monsters. So I say you're going to probably want like an iron through patrol which will be a, a maybe a group of dwarves that are, are are traveling to or from or even maybe just patrolling the valley. Yeah, and it could be some kind of posse that they hired too. They could be other an adventuring group in that way. Whatever you decide when you make it up. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't even have to be dwarves, but it is a patrol from Iron Through. It might be dwarves, it might be other adventurers, who knows, mercenaries. And you want to put that at the high end of your table so that we could do that sliding scale mechanic later. Um, also, if you have a bunch of evil player characters, this could be a real dangerous encounter. A bunch of fifth level dwarves, dwarves roll up on you, you know, doing, you know, human elven sacrifices or whatever, you know, that, that turns ugly. That can be your purple worm going the other way, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It could be tax collectors or maybe they, they take, taken tariffs like I do in my game and I know Paul does in his is you're limiting the uh, resources that the adventurers have. And so you're taxing what they have. It could be tax collectors or whatever for Lord Ironthu. All right, so one of the things we were talking about maybe having is Neanderthals, so that would be kind of be something in the middle that would absolutely eventually fall off, but they could be from the mountains, or maybe they're Pueblo-type Neanderthals, more like Native uh, First Nation people or something, too. They could have a little, some kind of settlement or something. I don't know. What do you think? That sounds good. I like Neanderthals, very OSR. <laughs> Put them in, in, the, in the lower end of the common, like five or six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we going to have bandits? Should we have bandits? Sure. We always have to have bandits. There's always bandits, kid. Bandits slash brigands. But they would be maybe uh, mid-lower, though, right? So they could mark off because when you get more civilized, they're uh, they're still bandits regardless, I guess. So it doesn't really matter. Like if you're going to put them on the lower scale, you could put them on like maybe four or five. Yeah. So they're not going to fall off, but they're going to get a lot less common. You know, going from – I don't have my any dice up, but going from a four on a two d six to a two is a you know is a swing of I don't know eight percent yeah. or something. Yeah, because it's like I say, if you to roll a two on two d twelve, you need it's one out of thirty six, but to roll a three is uh, one out of twelve because you can roll you can roll it more ways, and then it just gets more common. So yeah, I think that's a pretty good place. I, I think we want a hazard, which is just going to be like a natural hazard. Do you want to say like what you normally do for your hazard table, Eric? Yeah, so I actually have written um, a generic hazard table that I use in almost all my games, and it's it's broken up by the type of environment. So I really like natural hazards that aren't necessarily deadly, or often aren't deadly, but do things like slow down the party, right? Oh, they're in the woods, there's a huge fallen tree or a ravine, they've got to go around it. It doesn't hurt them, it doesn't slow them down, it's not even a combat, but it might make all the difference that they don't get back to town that night and have to camp out. I mean, it's stuff like that that's really makes forces decision making on the players and makes them feel like they're actually living in this world, not just fighting monsters as they, you know, trek across it. Um, the other things I have in like, for example, the grassland shrubland hazard table I have is bees, right? Underground bees. They step on, they're really a nuisance, but uh, they might cause um, a stat loss, temporary stat loss, if you get stung a lot. A flash flood or flash fire, as Jose uh, <laughs> suggested in the in the in the pregame, would be really cool. Look, you you could probably outrun it, but it might not let you go the direction you want to go. Yeah, it could slow you down. Um, freak weather. Use your resources. Yeah, right? go for hole. I love that one. Yeah. yeah, use your resources. So I have a whole a mishap uh, for resource mishap, uh, and that could be um, you lose somebody. St- 
sits on their arrows at camp and breaks a bunch of them. Somebody loses a bunch of food, yeah. right? Things that, that probably won't matter, but if you're trekking a real long way, that stuff could really force decisions on players and um, really emergent direction of the game. And you can tie those back to your encounter tables too, because if you have like the crevasse or ravine or sinkhole and you've got purple worm on there, it's easy to tie those together, show worm sign from that crevasse or that sinkhole and kind of, you know, use that to show the ominous nature of that very scary encounter that they could encounter. Yeah, for sure. So I'll share the ones I have with in the, in the notes, uh, for the, for the website, but you, and then you can see how these all start to work together. Um, with a little bit of effort up front, you've got nights of gaming and these kinds of decisions and encounters that are going to come up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, how many scenes do you normally have in a game? And these could be quick ones or they could take almost the whole session, depending on what the players do with them and uh, the, the environment or the surrounding situations on whatever it is that you end up rolling. All right. So the other two things that we had we had spoken briefly about previously is axe beaks. I wanted axe beaks, and we wanted, like, merchants. So we got two more slots. Does anyone have any thoughts that they might want? Now, we, in mentioning the merchant, we said it might be a traveling merchant NPC that the characters have a chance of encountering at times who might have special items for them, maybe potions of healing that they could buy, but they only encounter them occasionally coming to and from, so he's represented on the table as well. Yeah. So does anyone have anything yeah. else? we got two more. Eric, yeah, put in one? something. Uh, I like flying encounters in planes, yep. like maybe some kind of a giant vulture. Or a wyvern. That would be on the very high end. I, I was I was thinking more like the, <laughs> the slightly dangerous, right? You uh, can even, if you do don't you have do stats both? for giant vultures, you can just pluck stats for giant eagles out. And yeah, sure, let's do both. We'll just have flying vultures and wyvern, and now, and now it's done. Yeah. So we're getting Maybe the wyvern tight. and the purple worm or the cyclops hate each other. That would be great, too. Yeah, or maybe they're maybe one's the pet of the other. Yeah, that'd be a like real the, tough the, the <laughs> these things are all possible. Uh, anything is possible. That's the beauty of it, right? That's why we play the game. I think so. So now we have a two d six encounter table, uh, and uh, I think that's mostly of what we're going to plan on doing. Uh, I'm kind of pushing us along because we're getting to our forty minutes, guys. So, do you guys have any last thing you wanted to say about the encounter table? No, but I play the game for the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. Uh, Probably episode four of Hex Talk may be the last one. I think uh, we're just going to drop 40 minutes of advice on running a hex crawl, basically, like tips and tricks and uh, like some of the stuff that you might see from West Marches, like if you're running that kind of campaign, what, what that would entail. I think that'll pretty much do it. Don't you guys think so? Yeah, and then we get feedback from the community yes. to see whatever, if there's anything anybody else wants to hear specifically about. But, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. All right. You certainly can run a lot of hours of games based on just what we've thrown out so far. Okay, sounds good. So uh, we're going to push into the outro section here. Jose, you had something you want to say? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say, listen, uh, let's get some comments and some dialogue going from the community. It'd be great to hear more from you guys, get more uh, reviews, more comments. Hobbs is not asking for it, so I'm going to ask for him. It'd really be cool to hear from you. Um, put some posts out there, ask some questions, send some emails, and we'll we'll try to find time to address them on the show. If Hobbs ever has me on again, <laughs> yeah, you can rate stuff. You can rate uh, the podcast on you know you uh, iTunes or whatever. And obviously, I have a Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com, OSR and Hobbs. Uh, it, and it's actually crazily enough, a lot of people are getting involved in that, and it keeps increasing. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to three of them, like always: uh, Alessandro Bertolucci, another Canadian guy. Uh, I used to game with him. Super cool guy. Thanks for uh, 
uh, patronizing. <laughs> Ray Otis is new, and some guy named uh, Jose Lacario also on the list this month, this uh, episode. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. That sounds like a stolen identity to me. They sound like three great, great dudes, <laughs> three awesome dudes, especially Freak, that last one. Sons of, I mean, just kidding. All right, so if you want to get in touch with, I mean, you should, you guys, listeners, you're smart, you should know this by now, but we'll do it real quick. How do we get in touch with you, Eric? I can't imagine anybody listening to this isn't already connecting me with on Google Plus. <laughs> so, <laughs> but if not, that's where to find me or uh, StormlordPublishing.com. Jose. Google Plus, that's the place to find me. Oh, okay. I was, I thought maybe you had something lined up for the last two times you did. No, no, nothing funny. I know we're running out of time. No pithy comment out of you. So you can, you can find me <laughs> on the Twitters at, uh, Hobbs Indeed or at OSR and Hobbs. And, uh, the best place to get involved with these guys and me really is the G Plus community, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR, which we have 324 members now. Any last words, fellas? Crickets. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. It's <laughs> good night. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.